Okay, I do need your help this morning. Uh, a little bit of an icebreaker. Uh, I want you to think of the most radical Bible story in your memory. Like one that just like, whew, that is out there. Maybe it shocks you. Maybe it has some sort of personal effect on you. Maybe it scares you. Maybe you don't understand it. The most radical, outrageous Bible story that you can remember. And then share it with a neighbor. You've got a couple minutes to do this. You can do this now. Maybe you can help each other. Most radical. Most outrageous. One that makes you feel uncomfortable. Talk amongst yourselves. Okay, do we have any uh, volunteers who'd like to share? You can just stand up. You don't have to say anything about it, you just... Yes, Sid. So, so you never got to the end of the Goliath's death? Oh, okay, okay. So the record player is broke and kept skipping at stoning. He never got past slinging the stone. Okay, gotcha. Anybody else? Any others? Matthew? Yes. So then, then you don't, they underestimate him. Yes. And I don't know why I like that. So David on the run, really pretending to be wild and, and crazy, like he's lost his mind yeah. to kind of thwart off his enemies. That's a good one. Anybody else? Let's do one more. Mm. Yes. Yeah, I guess so. That's and then it worked. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you don't want to be thrown into fire. That's fair. That's fair. That's a good, uh, then you have good instincts, survival instincts. Uh, yeah, the one that I think of at the top of my head is, is actually related to David. We had this, uh, these uh, illustrated Bibles as kids, and there's one image that just stuck out of my head when Absalom gets caught, his hair gets caught in a tree. So his eldest son... Uh, is like trying to vie for the kingdom and he pushes David out of his throne and there's this like mini tiny civil war. In the end, Absalom, David's son, gets like his hair gets net, tangled in a tree. But the image that showed was a guy, like a muscly guy, hair locked in a tree like, ah! It was really disturbing as a, as a child to see because I didn't understand what was going on and it scared me. So, but today is not my, I'm, I, I'm, this is a disclaimer and I normally don't do this. Uh, but I feel like I need to this morning. This is not my story, okay? I did not make this story up. I'm not uh, extrapolating more from the story than I should. This story is a Bible story. It comes right from the scriptures. And if you don't like that, you can take it up with the big man and uh, argue with him, because it's not me, okay? And I want to explain a little bit of my process is... Despite what many of us have been like raised to believe, now this is can maybe get me in a lot of trouble. I will say right off the bat, there's no book, no story that I love more in the world than this one right here. I absolutely love the biblical story. 
like my, I breathe it. And that's not to be like, oh, I'm such a good Christian. I just love it as a narrative, as history. You guys know that by now. But it is not necessarily what we've been raised to think of it to be. There are competing ideas in the scriptures. Dare I say contradictions. Uh, Pastor Bob read one this morning from Isaiah. And we'll get to that in a little bit. Where there are ideas presented in the scriptures at certain points in the narrative history that don't necessarily correspond with parts of the later history. And if we read the story as just like a straight, static, white and black, immovable text, we're going to miss that stuff. And we're going to turn it into something that it's not. The Bible is actually an ongoing revelation of God in history through people. And he's inspired, certainly inspired people to write these things down that are beyond their, their comprehension, beyond their understanding. But it's, 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 a, it's like a, an evolution revolution. It's not the same. It's not static. It's, it's a living, breathing thing. And so I, I love studying the scriptures. And so here's a little bit of like backstory or kind of behind the scenes as to how I approach um, preaching. I don't really consider myself even a preacher. I consider myself someone who just wants to tell stories. And when it comes to certain passages of the scripture, I go into commentaries, I go into, and I have kind of preferred commentaries, and I'm not picky. I don't have like a specific branch of commentary, like a, like a Baptist or Reformed. I like it all. I'm very eclectic. And I like to go into the narrative of to like the place and the time and the people and the history. I like to know what were they thinking, what were they feeling, what, what were their motivations, and how did, the, how did that play out in that moment? Like, how are they feeling then as compared to their history? Because as people, we are always a moving history. We're all moving in time, and we have things that have happened in the past, and we have influence that have pushed us to where we are today. So it's the same back then, 2,000 years ago. And where was this story going? What was it leading to? And when we get to the New Testament, we get to Jesus, we see, like, the person of Jesus is like, he's like uh, the tip of the spear. He's like a sharp edge in space and time. He is cutting a new way to be a human being in the world. And what's following in his wake are very new ideas, very new ways for people to relate to each other and speak to each other and talk to each other and relate to God. And a lot of times, I don't think they were aware of it, as is often how God works. He's like, he's like ahead of the curve. He's behind the curve. He's, he's at the end and he's at the beginning. In fact, if you go to, the, to the, uh, the story of the burning bush, when you read the story where Moses and God are talking to the burning bush and God says to Moses, tell them, I am sent you. In the Hebrew, that has like, I can't remember, like 100 or 200 different meanings. I am past, I am future, I am present, I am now, I am now in the future. It is the most dynamic I am statement that you could, that you could possibly, like I am, I'm outside of your realm, Moses. I am God. And so when I come to the scriptures, I have, there's a narrative there, I like to really see what's going on, the dynamics, where is it, where is it coming from, where is it going, and what would it feel like to be in that moment? 
And I, I find that really, really liberating. And I've, I meet Jesus there all the time because it's like, well, that's his story. And so this story, you just kind of have to imagine that you're back in the Judean wilderness. And if you need some context, you just think of some nice, hot, beating down sun and the rolling Judean desert in the background, those rolling hills and the kind of the sandy, sweeping desert. And it's dry and it's dusty. And you're on a road. And you're on a road that's kind of like going southwest, kind of inching towards the Mediterranean, south of Jerusalem. You're quite far from, from the Dead Sea. You're nowhere near Galilee. You're kind of heading towards the Mediterranean on this road to Gaza. Now, Gaza is a very ancient city, and it's a city that the Israelites kind of fought with the Philistines over for hundreds of years. And Gaza is basically the last main stop before you kind of hit the coast down to Egypt. This is a road away from Jerusalem. You're moving away from kind of God's land. And it's kind of a wide enough road. It's not, it's not a small road. It's quite a popular road. It's wide enough for a chariot because you can actually see a chariot kind of clopping along. It's not racing. It's not going fast. It's just steady Eddie moving along this road, clopping and trotting, picking up dust under this hot Judean sun. And as you look, another strange thing that you can see is actually a man running beside this chariot, talking to the person inside of the chariot who's standing and you look and you see this person standing in the chair. He's actually holding a scroll. And he's black. And he's tall. And he's thin. And he's reading the Hebrew scriptures aloud. Fun fact. Who knows ancient Hebrew here? Only me. That's not true. I took two semesters of Hebrew. I failed 75% of them. And my Hebrew professor... Uh, was very kind, and he passed me because he shouldn't have. But ancient Hebrew is a really beautiful language. But what's really fascinating about ancient Hebrew is that there were no vowels in ancient Hebrew. Does anybody know that? Yes, Dustin knows that. There's no value, vowels. Ancient Hebrew was a, was a language that basically, if you weren't to read it, you had to read it aloud. You had to memorize the vowel points. So in our, our language, we have whatever, 23 letters, 26, I don't remember. But we have our vowels that make certain sounds. Ancient Hebrew does not have vowels. It wasn't until like the 600s AD that monks decided to put the vowel placements in the language because they feared, and, and I think oh, things Jewish monks, whatever, scribes, started dotting little dots and little dashes to kind of help pronounce the vowel points because there were none, and it was, kind of a, it was kind of a dying language, and they didn't want to lose the meaning of it, because Hebrew is a really dynamic language, and you don't read Hebrew left to right like we do, you read right to left, and you read right to left aloud. To read it in your head would almost be impossible, because you'd, ha you'd have to memorize the scriptures so well, otherwise you wouldn't really know what you're saying, which is a really interesting fact, that it's this like dynamic language that almost necessitates breath 
to make it alive. Breath and memory and tradition that you would only know the language by someone passing it down to you. And here this guy in the chariot, he's black, tall, I imagine lean, dressed nicely, ornately, holding a scroll, and he's reading it aloud. He's reading Hebrew aloud. And this man is running beside him. And the man looks up and he says, hey, do you know what you're reading? And the man in the chariot says, no, not really. He's like, do you know what you're even talking about as you're reading this? And the man says, no, could you, could you help me? Explain it to me? And so the oddest thing happens is this guy kind of climbs in the chariot. Maybe it stops. Maybe he just jumps right in. I don't know. And these two people sit side by side. Now this story comes from Acts chapter 8. The man running beside the chariot is Philip. The man in the chariot is the Ethiopian eunuch. What's really interesting about this story is Philip, he had been in Samaria. He had had Simon, the story that we did last week, and, and John and Peter show up, and there's this big kerfuffle, and kind of Peter kind of throws his weight around, and Simon the great wizard is kind of like ambiguously a disciple of Jesus. We're not sure. And from that point on, Philip is kind of visited by an angel of the Lord, which is synonymous with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit basically says to Philip, hey, Philip, really specifically, which is rare. That doesn't happen very often in the New Testament scriptures. I want you to go to this road at lunchtime, at noon, right here, at this spot. The road between Gaza and Jerusalem, south, noon, be there. Philip, the non-apostle, this is the, the Hellenist Jew, one of the deacons, he listens to the Holy Spirit, he goes down this road, south of Jerusalem, midpoint somewhere in there, at lunchtime, run into this weird, strange sight of an Ethiopian in a chariot, holding a Hebrew scroll, reading it aloud. Odd. Serendipitous, if there ever was a moment in the scriptures. And Philip, through the rumble and rattle of the wheels and the horse clop and the dust, he can hear this guy speaking the Hebrew scriptures aloud. And this is what he is reading. He's reading from Isaiah 53. Who believes what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubbly plant in a parched field. There's nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over. A man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sin that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him, 
our sins. He took the punishment that made us whole. Though his bruises, through his bruises, we get healed. We are all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way. And God has piled on all our sins, everything we've done wrong on him. On him. He was beaten and tortured, but he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice miscarried, and he was let off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man, even though he'd never hurt a soul or even said one word that wasn't true. Still, it's what God had in mind all along, to crush him with pain. The plan was to give himself as an offering for sin so that he'd see life come from it, life, life, and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. This Ethiopian eunuch is reading from Isaiah which has come hundreds of years before. And what's perplexing about this is that he's holding a Hebrew scroll coming from Jerusalem on a pilgrimage to the temple. Now this character, we don't know his name, but we know that he's a eunuch, which means he is actually the treasure of his queen from the land of Ethiopia, which at this time was considered by Romans to be the ends of the earth. This is like last stop into the unknown wilderness. So, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This man is going home to the brink of the known world. He's a servant of the queen. He's a eunuch. He's a treasurer. And the word eunuch is literal. He's been castrated. And if you wanted to get really into the history of what this word means, it could mean a lot of different things. But it means he's castrated. It could mean that he's castrated, also homosexual. It means he's castrated, could be homosexual, could be asexual. He may not have any sexual orientation. Now, they didn't use words like that back then. But we would understand that person is queer. And this man is holding a Hebrew scroll coming from a pilgrimage from Jerusalem, reading Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. And what's most perplexing is that in the Deuteronomic law, from, from the words of Moses himself, eunuchs are not allowed to participate in the assembly of God. Explicitly. If you're castrated, you've lost your testicles, you don't have a penis, whatever. Forgive me for the, for the but that's what the Bible says. You are not allowed to participate in the assembly of the gathering of God's people. So this man was at the temple because he's a God-fearing man. We don't know if he's a Jew. We don't know if he's a Gentile. That's left up to the imagination. Some people think that he's, 
He's got to be a Jew because Luke doesn't start talking about the Gentile mission until a little bit later. Some people think he's a Gentile. He's the first Gentile to come in contact with the gospel of Jesus. But he'd just come from the temple where he's not actually allowed to participate. He can be on the periphery, but he can't go inside. He's lucky because Herod the Great had, had expanded the Temple Mount. And there's what's this thing called the, the Court of the Gentiles. And, you know, you could fit like a million people in the Court of the Gentiles. It's a massive, massive Temple Mount. You could just pack them in like sardines. And that's where the women could go. That's where foreigners could go. That's where Gentiles could be. That's where eunuchs could be. But he couldn't get any farther than that. He could not go into the temple. He could not go in to have his sins cleansed by the priests and sacrifices. He could get as close to the door as possible. That's it. And yet he had made the pilgrimage from the ends of the earth in a chariot. Who knows how long that took, how perilous that journey has been to get to Jerusalem to only be, be denied at the door. Knowingly, willingly, that's what he's walking into. And he's coming back with a scroll of Isaiah reading about the servant, the suffering servant. One, one scholar said it like this, this is the most appropriate text for him to be reading because it's probably how he felt. Rejected, beaten, misunderstood. He's sympathizing with this person in Isaiah. And Philip runs up beside him and says, do you have any idea what you're talking about? And he says, no, not really. Who is this guy? Who is this prophet? Who is this suffering servant? And Philip, he just grabs a chance. Now Philip's like, oh boy, now I get it. Noon on the road, stay here, wait, boom. He clops into, the, into this chariot and he starts teaching and preaching and telling the stories of Jesus. That is Jesus that you're reading about. The one who did nothing. The one who took on all the sins of the world. Willingly, silently, like a lamb to be slaughtered. For us. Because his love for us is so profound and so deep. It's so transcendent, it makes real no sense, Ethiopian eunuch. But that's how deeply God loves us. So that we can be reconciled to him. It's Jesus you're reading about. Well, the Ethiopian eunuch is an easy fish to hop in the, in the boat. Easy sell. He believes. He's like, absolutely, that makes sense. I love it. And they go on and on and on. And then finally, they're in this chariot. And then finally, they see some water. And the Ethiopian says, there's some water. What will prevent me from being baptized right now? What will stop me from being baptized? I believe there's some water. What rules, what rituals, what beliefs, what ideologies, what statements, what scriptures will keep me from going into the waters of baptism and becoming a full-fledged follower of Jesus? Philip says, nothing. And they wade into the water and Philip baptizes him. And he comes out of the water 
overjoyed. And it's a little bit sneaky in the language here, depending how you read what version, what commentary suggests certain things, but it doesn't explicitly say that he is filled with the Holy Spirit. He's filled with joy. Which, just a story before, the Holy Spirit didn't come until the apostles laid hands. But here we're getting a kind of a sneak peek that actually, no, you don't need Peter or John's hands to pass the Holy Spirit on. The joy of the Lord fills this guy up. And immediately, Philip's job is done. He is beckoned somewhere else. And the Ethiopian eunuch goes home to the ends of the earth. And tradition says he becomes a missionary. And he starts spreading the goodness of Jesus in the ends of the earth. This story comes right from the book of Acts. This is Luke's story. It's not mine. And it is a really confounding story. And I'll be honest, one that I've not really invested a lot of time in. Until very recently. And the more I got in, it was like, ooh, that is complex. That is us, that is an uncomfortable story for a white evangelical male pastor to be honest about. That's a risky story, Amos. Are you sure you want to tell that story? That a black Ethiopian eunuch may have been the first Gentile to receive Jesus? That's pretty wild. But why should it all be a surprise? When we go to Deuteronomy and we look at the, the history of the, the, this evolution of these people, God's people, we have to remember it's a very different time. When Moses is coming off the mountain, there's no law, there's no king, they're a wandering bunch of people with no one guiding them except God. They're a migrating nomadic tribe wandering through the wilderness. And the law of Deuteronomy was like their first kind of like, uh, what would you call it? Declaration of independence. Their first kind of binding agreement of who they wanted to be as a people. To be separate and different from the nations around them. Absolutely. Makes total sense. But as that evolution goes along, hundreds of years pass, and they've, they've lost their way. And they're misguided. And Isaiah the prophet comes down with an oracle and he says, what Bob read this morning, for God says to the mutilated, translations, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what delights me and keep a firm grip on my covenant, I'll provide them an honored place in my family and within my city even more honored than that of sons and daughters. I'll confirm permanent honors on them that will never be revoked. And as for the other outsiders who now follow me, working for me, loving my name, and wanting to be my servants, all who keep Sabbath and don't defile it, holding fast to my covenant, 
I'll bring them to my holy mountain, Sinai, where God spoke to Moses. And I'll give them joy in my house of prayer. They'll be welcome to worship the same as the insiders. To bring burnt offerings and sacrifices to my altar. Oh yes, my house of worship will be a known of, as a house of prayer for all people. The decree of the master, God himself, who gathers in the exiles of Israel, I will gather also others also. Gather them in with those who are already gathered. I have nothing else to say except a simple question. It's one that I ask myself. Who is allowed to be a follower of Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you breathe life, life, and more life. And we thank you that your life is light. It's not a burden. That your yoke is easy. It's not heavy. That, Jesus, you don't call us into a life of, of angst and uh, like grinding, ideological pretzel-making to make sense of things. You actually call us into a life that is life-giving, a life of love, of patience, forbearance, joy. We thank you that you've been doing this work for centuries, calling those on the outside to come inside. That you don't see the distinction of race, ethnicity, gender, age, economic status. You see the hearts of people and Jesus, may we have hearts that would make you proud. May we have hearts that are like Philip, who are obedient and eager to spread the good news that you have to give. May we have hearts like the Ethiopian eunuch that we may be seeking and we don't yet really know what we're even looking for, but we're willing and we're eager. I thank you for your story. I thank you that it is a life-breathing, life-giving testament to your work in the world. And I pray that we would have continued courage to continue to follow you where you lead. Thank you for this day in your name. Amen. Well, if you're feeling uncomfortable, I am too. So if I've made you feel uncomfortable, I feel really uncomfortable. Uh, so you can email me all week long. That's great. Again, what my attempt is always is uh, the, the Bible is not right, left. It's not ideological. It's not liberal, Republican, conservative. It's the testament to God's work in the world. That's what it is. It's a witness to things that have unfolded. And so I'm making no statement this morning about anything in terms of doctrinal statements or positions on faith. It, I'm just trying to be a witness to the story of Jesus and his love for the world. So go in peace and be kind to your pastor this week.
Thanks for listening to the Blue Mountain Community Church Podcast. May God's word fill you up this week. God bless.